Everybody in the hotel block was dancing to the jailhouse rock. Well, what's the verdict, kids? Another hit for Elvis? I'll say. Oh, yes. That's the title song of Elvis's newest picture, Jailhouse Rock. And he sings six different songs. Six? Gosh. And something else very special. Oh, what's that, Ted? Elvis acts in Jailhouse Rock. His first dramatic singing role. Plays sort of a, a blackboard jungle type of kid, you know? And he's terrific. Elvis sings, Elvis fights, Elvis dances, and Elvis falls in love. This picture, Jailhouse Rock's a terrific picture for teenagers, and it's wonderful, too. I've seen it, and I enjoyed every minute. Don't miss Elvis Presley, Judy Tyler, and Mickey Shaughnessy in MGM's Jailhouse Rock in Cinemascope. Are you taking your moment? That's a funny saying, right? Take a moment. It's a pause, usually to reflect or catch our breath or examine something more closely, asking permission for someone's attention in time. May I take a moment? Or to excuse ourselves to a task. This should take just but a moment. What I mean, though, is are you taking your moments seriously, investing in them? Priorities in our life, or more precisely, priorities in the way that we spend our time in our life, well, they can become skewed. We can become enraptured with the moments, the things that we think are the most urgent things, the most pressing moments, putting out that client fire, answering emails, posting on social media, writing that blog post, making the 75th sales call, attending John's meeting. Did we do anything important in John's meeting? Did we invest in our time at all today? Did we take our moment. There's an old Chinese proverb that says the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Stephen Covey, the author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, say that very few people have organized their life to the prioritized almost exclusively important and deep activities, learning, health, relationships, travel, life goals. And this can lead us to feel, quite frankly, sad, alone frustrated, regretful. In some cases, we become regretful because we look back at all the missed moments, the opportunities lost, or our colleagues and friends who are enjoying now the fruits of their deep investments in time. They took their moment, and all we can say is, it's too late for us. We? We missed out. Time to open up Outlook and get back to answering emails. But yeah, the old Chinese proverb is true. Maybe the best time to take that moment was a time in the past. But the second best time is today. Everyone you know has any number of dreams, goals, journeys which were not or are not fulfilled. That perfect soulmate that we didn't choose, the job we should have taken, the company we should have invested in, the house we never bought, the degree we should have gotten, the book we haven't written. We see these as the roads not taken, to quote the Robert Frost poem. And mostly, these are the regrets we have in our careers, our lives, the investment of our moments. But just remember, the road not taken is not necessarily the one less traveled. They are indeed different. We feel the regret because we feel like we missed planting that tree on the road less traveled. That it would be blossomed by now, that we would be different, that we would be better, and maybe maybe that's true but they are simply the roads you didn't take they may or may not have been the one less traveled 
Let's not forget that Frost's poem ends by saying, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. He doesn't tell you whether the difference was good or bad. His tree may have never grown. And this brings up one last thing, which is that when you've chosen the other road, if you've chosen the other road, the one perhaps less traveled, there can be a sense of regret or loneliness or sadness about the one you're leaving behind. You feel it as you watch the old road disappear as it meanders off to the right or left of you. And the important thing to remember here is that regret can get you caught up in a whole new set of meaningless moments, just different than the ones you left behind. So don't forget to make the deep time investments in the new road as well. And that's the theme of our show today. Take a moment. Make an investment in moments, deep investments. Making value investments in the moments on both the road you're on and the new ones that will become part of your new journey. The best time to have taken a road may have been five years ago, but today, today is the second best time. You face divergent roads right now. You can take the road less traveled, or you can stay on the one you're on. But the key to growing trees is not letting regrets stop you from consistently giving yourself the investment of time to plant the seeds. And now it's time for me to sow some laughter and insight and join up with my pal, Farmer Joe. We're the farmers of content marketing. We're outstanding in our field. We can't keep it a secret because the potatoes have eyes and the corn has ears. You ready to earn your celery? Come home beat? Want to read the pepper? Well, turn up the volume and end dive into our show. You ready to plow ahead? Then let's roll. For your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 194 of PR's This Old Marketing, recorded Monday, July 31st, 2017. And with me, as always, is my co host, my colleague, my friend, and the guy who's grown all the content marketing trees, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? Oh, I like growing trees. It's very, very special. Again, I can't wait for your introduction. I want to, anytime you talk about weird things, uh, then I actually have to listen to your introduction. Exactly. Well, it goes off of the, you know, the the wonderful Chinese proverb that that says, you know, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, and the second best time is today. Oh, that's nice. I like that. Yeah, so it's never too late to make a change, basically, is the the idea. So you're getting... You're sort of getting packed up because you're coming to Cleveland. Like, I am. I'm super excited. I got my suitcase all. I got it. I got it. I got it repaired. It was a little bit broken, and I have. I took the occasion to get my suitcase repaired and get all packed up, and I am ready and raring to get to Cleveland and and hang out and film some introduction videos and record the audio book and just uh, maybe drink a little bit of wine. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Well, wait a second. I got to go back to the luggage thing. You, why didn't you just buy new new luggage? Like what? No, you, you get um, well because first of all, I buy. So so those of you who know me know that I am a 
I am a, I don't know what the word would be that's safe for work, but it's, I am a bag aficionado. How about that? Um, I love me a good bag and I spend money on bags. And so my, my bag, it get, it's got lifetime repairs on it. My Tumi, my Tumi has lifetime repairs wow. on it. And so when stuff breaks like a wheel or a, uh, one of the pulls, which is what broke is one of the pulls on the zipper. Um, you can get that stuff fixed for free. And so I took my luggage in because one of the pulls had broken and I wanted the wheels replaced. And so they did all of that and cleaned it up. And you and took it to a luggage shop? I did. I, I took it to the Toomey store. This is crazy. Is, uh, we don't have a Toomey store in, in Cleveland. <laughs> well, basically, I'm, I'm well, you sure go you do actually have a Toomey store somewhere there. Really? You just don't know where it is. Yes. Well, I'm saving up for the, the special steamer bag that was in Joe versus the Volcano. <laughs> that's That's the only bag I have ever wanted. The yeah. one that you can actually play putt putt with, yeah, that's I know that's I the know one. The bag. Yeah, that's the one I'm going for. Well, good. I, I want to. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing seeing you and your your <laughs> and fixed my luggage. luggage. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Yeah, just so people know, we're recording the audio book for Killing Marketing. So that's right. That'll be fun. We'll, we're going to try to do that all in one day. So we'll see how that goes. And then we are recording uh, some of the introduction videos for Content Marketing World. So that's right. That's right. There and you so go. We should be good and punchy. By the time it gets oh, to recording, Mike. can you the, imagine the at the end? Oh, yeah. it's yeah, it's it. All all bets are off. Killing marketing. The, <laughs> there will be Red alcohol involved. Me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, folks. We're a little bit punchy as it is. All right. Hey, speaking of content yes. marketing world, we should we should talk about that because goodness gracious, that's coming up fast. Just, yeah, just a, just a quick reminder, not a, not a full promo here, but use the code PNR100 <clears throat> to re- receive a $100 discount to make it to Content Marketing World this year, September 5th through 8th. 4,000 of, of the friendliest, most wonderful people from 70 plus countries will be in Cleveland this year for Content Marketing World. Can't be more excited. And I, yeah, so it's the 31st. So it's five weeks away, ex- exactly five weeks from wow. as we record this. That's, That's crazy. Coming it feels up like, very quickly. Oh my gosh. It's, I'm not ready. I have to get ready. And we I'm can't, ready. well, we can't, well, you and I both, but we can't talk about it yet. But this week, I believe we're announcing our closing keynote. We oh, cannot announce I know it. Who it, is. it will come out this week. Is, I know though. you know who it is. Yeah. But. Some people don't know who it is, so we have I to know. just hold off and wait. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I, we've been trying to get this guy for years. So, oh, it's a guy. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, there you go. See, it's you a just guy. start talking. And and now somebody's going to Somebody's going to get it. Somebody's going to yeah. figure it out. But just from that, it's a man. <laughs> it's a man, it's baby. A man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. All right. Hey, so, so folks, we have something fun for you, which is uh, 194 episodes in. We're going to change up the format a little bit um, going forward and introduce a new segment uh, into the show. Um, we haven't really changed the format for about 100 episodes, so I think uh, it's about time we shook it up a bit. We are going to introduce this new segment, which we're calling the Quick Hits segment, um, which is trying to expand our news coverage just a bit to get to a few more news stories really quickly here and also widen out our view just a little bit. So the Quick Hits segment will cover very quickly just anything that we see is really important from marketing, 
advertising, content, startups, just the world we live in, or whatever it is we think you guys should be paying attention to and what we might have a take on. So we'll go through that uh, quickly. We're going to go through about two or three news stories quickly in our quick hits, and then we'll get to our in-depth coverage and analysis of the more content marketing and content strategy-focused pieces of the news. So... You ready, Mr. Polizzi, for our? Quick I had test? no idea you were doing this. <laughs> Just kidding. Get you. That's thanks. Fantastic. You did. You did tell it's, me. I I don't know. I like it. I like covering more news. I I'm all. I mean, I have to do more work. That's right. Read more it articles. is more work for us, as if we didn't need more. But yes, I think it'll be fun. I think it'll be fun because they're they're. They tip, they typically are bigger stories in the industry, and they're broader stories, and so there's stuff that you and I would talk about anyway and have a opinion on, and going all the way back to the origins of this show, which was basically you and I hanging out on the phone and, and gossiping for an hour, this is really where we started anyway, so it's it's coming all the way back to the roots if you really want to look at it. Back that way. to the beginning. That's right. Back to life, All back right. to reality. Sorry. All right. There, there we go. No, Good. let's go with our first story here. This is going to come courtesy of Ad Age. Um, the headline is Lauren Powell uh, Jobs, who is, of course, Steve Jobs' widow, buys a majority stake in the Atlantic. Um, and the Ad Age opens up by saying, Lorene Powell Jobs Emerson Collective has agreed to acquire a majority stake in the Atlantic, the iconic political and cultural magazine that has also become a force in digital publishing. Powell Jobs, the 53-year-old widow of Apple co founder Steve Jobs is buying the stake from Atlantic Media Chairman David Bradley, who will remain a minority owner, the publication said Friday. What did you think about this? Is this, I thought, I heard from a couple of people that they thought this was a really big deal. Well, for, uh, first of all, I had no idea she was already in the industry so much. With uh, So she's funded Anonymous Content, which says it's a, a talent management company behind the films The Revenant and Spotlight. So that's something. Yeah. And $18 it all, billion dollars as part of that. Foundation. $18, 18 billion dollars is the, is her net worth. And I think that this is going to come down to brands and billionaires. Like if you, if you said, what's the future of media? Who's going to own media? I come up with, you know, we, of course we've talked in every episode almost about brands buying media companies. And then we've got billionaires like, uh, like uh, this one here. And we've got Bezos, of course, from Amazon buying up the Washington Post and other things, I'm sure, in the future. So my quick take is I think we're going to hear more of these stories, and it's either going to be the IBMs and the Cisco systems of the world, or it's going to be the the billionaires like Jobs and, and Bezos. I don't know if you agree with that, but that's what I think. I think it's – I do agree, but I think it's temporary. I think what you're seeing now is a bit of a reaction by very rich people who care about journalism and fear for its – life and don't see brands or anyone, quite frankly, coming forward to subsidize what has been great classic quality journalism, um, which, you know, depending on which side of the aisle you sit on, you might find the Atlantic one or the other. But despite the politics of it, um, you know, they've been relatively well known for having a high degree of quality in their journalism. And I think this is her stepping up saying, you know what, rather than see the Atlantic suffer, um, I'm going to subsidize it with uh, with with my money, and and you know, very similar to what Bezos did with the Washington Post. I think there's an opportunity there to turn it around and make a lot of money. And I think you're going to, I I do see think you're going to see more of this until I believe you start to see brands stepping up to the plate here. I I don't I don't I just don't think it's temporary. I think yeah. that I I think that they're absolute. I I think what we were seeing in media right now, and I don't I don't see this as a temporary issue. 
Um, I, I think that you're actually going to see more and more. I mean, uh, you go back to Murdoch. I mean, of course, it, this is not a new thing that's happened where you have billionaires owning media companies. No, of course not. And right. they be, they've become billionaires partly through that, and so it's just a little bit harder today through the media. So, I mean, I, I would love to believe that it, the brands will sort of lead the way in this. I just think that it's slower go because you and I, have we've gone, gone into these companies, and we mention it, and they look at us like we've got two heads. Like, what? Are you – like, we can do that? It's like, yeah, you can you absolutely can do that. Well, you get a billionaire, and they don't have any they, – they can do whatever they want, or they feel they can do whatever they want. Come in here and buy up. Oh, this is a really good base that we can build on. Let's go forward. It's going to be a voice in the industry. And then it, the article even says that um, – that she'll probably take full ownership of the Atlantic. So there you yeah. go. No, yeah, no, yeah. She's going to, she's going to own the whole thing outright. Yeah. And I think I, well, to the reason I think we both could be right here is because it's going to be a very fuzzy, you know, picture of what's a billionaire, what's a brand, right? I mean, you know, I mean, you can argue that she's, you know, her organization is a brand buying a media company and all the rest of it. So I think, I think there's a fuzzy line there of you know what's a billionaire buying a media brand versus what's a brand buying a that's, brand, you know well that's true but if you ask Alexa who owns the Washington Post it's not Amazon it's no it's Jeff Bezos Jeff Bezos yeah, yeah. yeah it so, is yeah it, yeah although there's a little bit of a blurry line there so yeah. there you go <laughs> as exactly. you as you just mentioned so all right second quick hit here for our headlines this is coming courtesy of the wall street journal this is about of course it is earnings season folks if any of you are in the stock market and facebook has come out with their earnings and by all accounts um i think they slam dunked broke the backboard and did a triple double all in one um what marketers should note from facebook's second quarter earnings says the wall street journal um and the facebook surge in revenue during the second quarter as advertisers spent 9.1 six billion dollars with the social media platform 47 percent more than they did a year ago the company's profits also soared jumping 71 percent to 3.9 billion as marketers ramped up spending on its increasing array of ad products um what'd you think i mean i know you're long facebook but what'd you think about uh about this well the, the immediate thing that hit me is <clears throat> the the profits Oh, so nine, 9.16 in revenues, 3.9 billion in profits, right? Is that what, is yep. that what I'm reading? Yep. Doesn't it seem like that's the good old days of media? I mean, this is, yeah, there's a 30, 40 is. years ago when you had monopolies. Of course, you could make a case that Facebook has a monopoly and uh, Snapchat aside. Um, so that's what, that, that doesn't seem like it could last Something's got to happen. So that's the first thing that's just like, wow, that, that just seems like we you know take it back 40 years and that's where we are. The second thing is, we've talked about this many times on the podcast, is they still are only leveraging really one type of revenue stream, advertising. That's right. And just look at advertising. They really haven't tapped into the full potential of WhatsApp or Facebook mes- Messenger yet. Uh, so I don't even know how big uh, this could get, let alone the other things that they're going to launch. Uh, to monetize the audience, so this I, I I I just think that this is unbelievable. Uh, but the problem, the only problem that I saw, and they mentioned at the end of this article, is they're running out of inventory. They're out of inventory. They are. And what we talked about this last show, right, with the inventory and the you know new inventory being created with these groups, right, by by letting brands starting to create groups. And and Zuckerberg was big on this, by the way. His whole 
theme was community, right? He wants to build community with Facebook and, and the whole thing. And letting brands build communities, quote unquote, or groups, private groups through their brand pages is going to open up new inventory. But that I think you're right. They're, they're, they're going to run out of inventory. I mean, they, you, you know, to your point, they have not monetized at all Instagram or, or, or any of those things yet. And I don't, but I don't really see a, you know, there's no real, I mean, there's, this is one of the economists that was on the, the CNBC that's covering it, which is one of the things that we'll link to in the show notes, of course, but it, it, it he said there really is no impediment to growth here. Um, now, We'll cover our story here in just a second, our last quick hit here, which may put a damper on that. But it really, the only thing I can see that puts a damper on their growth at all is if the bottom falls out of advertising, right, and social advertising. And if they don't get their you-know-what together when it comes to measurement um, and being able to provide some level of granularity around accuracy, I think there's a great likelihood that it could. But we'll see. I, you know, I mean, there's a long way for this horse to run when it comes to Facebook's stock price. Well, agreed. But the big issue I think comes back to, and that's why you're going to see Facebook make some uh, acquisitions here because they're in the boardroom and they're saying, okay, we're doing great with advertising. Yes, we could see a blip that, yes, we're, we, we're trying to measure this thing and, and, and tie it to sales and all that stuff. But really they're saying, oh my gosh, we can't put any more ads on here. It's going to hurt the user experience. So yeah. what are we going to do? Snapchat's back in play. There's no doubt about it. Yep. I mean, I'm sure they're oh, in yeah. conversations now, right. especially with Snapchat's price going from twenty right. high of twenty seven down last week down to we thirteen and week. change now. So yeah. yeah, and I think it's probably and and I don't know if if Zuckerberg and team is waiting for it to go down even further so they can get a discount, but I don't think that's they have the cash obviously to buy Snapchat right now, um, and then immediately they get additional inventory because Snapchat has not maximize the inventory on that platform from what I'm yeah. from everything that I'm reading. So I think that's the, that's the big issue. The one, one last thing that I'll add here. I, cause I love this. This was buried in the depth of the earnings announcement. You're going to love this. Okay. Did you listen to the earnings announcement? I did not. I did not. Okay. So you're going to love this. So what they, one of the things that they said was they're going to be going big into original content, right? They're making a huge investment into original content, video content for, for the platform. They're going to be treating that as a marketing expense. Really? Isn't that awesome? Wow. Yep. I did not hear that. Yep. There you go. I thought there you said you they go. were going to get in the movie business or something. No. Like well, they may, but they'll be looking at that as a marketing expense. So just and seen. There we yeah. go. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So last quick hit story here is courtesy of Ad Age. Um, and this is sort of the anti-story of what we just covered here. This is P&G slashing digital ads by $140 million, um, over brand safety. And then guess what? Sales rise anyway. The uh, article opens up by saying the P&G's concerns about where its ad were showing up online contributed to a $140 million cutback in the company's digital ad spending last quarter, the company said Thursday, that helped the world's biggest advertiser beat earnings expectations. Perhaps even more noteworthy, however, organic sales outperformed both analyst forecasts and key rivals at 2% growth despite the drop in ad support. So is this an, yet another sign that we see ads going down? Well, what do you think? Well, the one thing is the article makes the case that, oh, they – they didn't spend the $140 million in advertising and they didn't their, say, right. what, their revenues did, went up, yeah. so it didn't hurt them. Or, right. you know, so they didn't miss that. Now, if you know anything about advertising, it doesn't hurt you in the current quarter. 
it hurts you in the next quarter, right. the that, quarters that's the after flaw that. In this. Exactly. So exactly. that's where I'm like, I, I cannot believe the article that brought that up. But you know, I get it. I mean, they're trying to go for the story. That's I right. honestly. The more that I read into what's happening with P&G and how a lot of people think that they're struggling and sort of lost their way, the more that I think, you know how all that, and we covered the articles on this podcast where they talk about the hundred, you know, the, the, the amount of millions of dollars that they're pulling off the table for advertising. And I get it because they don't want that advertising to go to certain places and they've got this big feud going on with YouTube. But I really, after reading this and some other articles, I think it was a big excuse. I think somebody, the CFO probably, went into the marketing department and said, you have to cut this money. And I don't care how you do it, just cut it. Because we're struggling a little bit. We're not going to spend, you know, number one or number two in the world anymore on marketing and advertising. And it came out as we don't sure. like what we don't like. Yeah, they use story. it as an excuse. Yeah. That's what yeah. I think has happened. So I think that we've... We as we in the media, we in we on this podcast, other podcasters, other articles, uh, are sort of over have overblown that issue of P and G really looking at oh our our marketing's not performing. Yes, of course, you want advertising to perform better, and you talk about the inefficiency of advertising all the time, and we make that case for it. But I think it was a is a larger issue. I think I couldn't agree with you more. And in fact, somebody, uh, one of my friends, forwarded me. Um, like four other articles from two years ago, four years ago, seven years ago, and 10 years ago, where P&G has been doing this for every couple of years, right? Where they come out and talk about how they're going to threaten ad agencies with performance-based metrics, and we're going to get out of this game, and we're going to do this. And basically, they've been, you know, they've been complaining about doing this, exactly this kind of stuff and doing these kind of cutbacks for 10 years, for a decade. And so, it's a, a lot of this I have to believe is exactly what you just said, a normal spending cut that they're positioning as something different. So, I, I, I'd have it does to, take more than a quarter for advertising ex- effectiveness to take effect, right? Exactly. So, to, you know, oh. cut, it, cut it again this quarter and cut it again next quarter, and then let's see if the, if the, where we are, you know? If then, you, then let's see where we are. I've been involved in companies that have done this, where the, the, the CEO and the CFO go in and say, we're really struggling. Uh, we really need to shine on earnings. What do we do? Cut marketing. You cut that marketing back. And of course, for the next quarter or two, it's fine. And yeah. then you're like, oh, my God, our projections aren't, you know, we're not getting the sales we wanted to. Our pipeline looks doesn't look like it used to be. What's going on? And then you realize, oh, my God, we cut millions of dollars out of the budget uh, six, <laughs> exactly. nine months ago, and now we're paying for it. I would like to see an article. I would like to see some comment from P&G saying, we're, yes, we cut this $140 million, not because of or whatever, but here's how we're reinvesting it. Right. Here's where we're moving the money. That's exactly. Well, I want to know where the money's going. And right now it looks like it's just going to the bottom line so that they can, uh, I mean, I, who knows what's going to happen to P&G. There's so many rumors. So yeah, there you go. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was our quick hits segment. Um, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, let us know if you did and, and, um, and we'll continue doing that. Um, and now we'll move on to the stories that we want to cover in a little more depth here, our in-depth news section. And, uh, we'll still, uh, we'll open up the, the, the stories here with one from Digiday. Um, and the headline here, uh, is Hearst is experimenting in commerce and content. 
the article opens up by saying, for the last 18 months, Hearst Magazine's digital media has been building a site that is helping it figure out the ins and outs of affiliate commerce. Best Products, already one of the largest digital native sites in Hearst's portfolio, has become the private publisher's laboratory to test multiple affiliate commerce strategies all at once, publishing content that focuses on everything from products, stylish white sneakers you can kick it in during the summer, to local travel experiences, the best lobster rolls in New York City that taste like the real deal. I'm not sure there is a lobster roll in New York City that tastes like the real deal, but all right, I'll take their word on that. Um, anyway, to branded content designed to help both brands and retailers. So this is Hearst getting into the product business. What did you What did you make of this? Well, I mean, it's not new. I mean, of course, the New York Times has Wirecutter. And that's a, yep. a very profitable affiliate marketing site. Uh, this is just an expansion of, all right, you've we've we've got um, these assets in people and and databases, the audiences, and all this content. And how can we make money off it? Because our advertising is going down the tubes. I mean, that's just so. Oh, hey, we've got this new thing. I mean, it's great. I'm not putting it down, but this is a, a natural progression of what we need to see. The one thing I wanted to get your take on is. So Troy Young, Hearst Magazine's global head of digital, this is like the third paragraph in, says, content marketing has been broadly embraced by the industry. Uh, but most sophisticated yeah. clients are saying, now what? Uh, has, is that true? Yeah. Is it, uh, because <laughs> right. this, I've, this is the first time hearing about it. Uh, if, if content marketing has been embraced by the media, quote unquote, media industry and media people like Hearst, it is complete news to me. I did not know this was a thing. I thought maybe sponsored content, maybe native advertising, but not helping, really, really helping brands understand their audiences and how to build those audience loyal, trust, uh, trustful relationships with those audiences over the long term uh, outside of campaigns. I don't see that. Ha- Do you see that happening? I don't. I, don't, I just don't see that. No. I don't see. I, I certainly don't see it happening as 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 uh, in as technicolor a way as being described here. Um, you know, I think it's starting to happen. I mean, some of the conversations I'm certainly having with media companies these days is that I, you know, I mean, to whatever I don't know, whatever degree we we've had some effect on the conversation, but I do I, I do start to see media companies talking about this more. This idea of content marketing and getting beyond this, you know, whether it's native advertising or whether it's branded or sponsored content and and basically looking at it as a means of, you know, quite frankly, for themselves opening up into new revenue streams and new opportunities and the new abilities. You know, most of the time when I get the question, it's about services, right? It's about how do we start offering content yep. marketing services to brands that we can monetize our writers or monetize our people or our platforms in different ways that help brands other than just, you know, than, than advertising. And it's not usually around, you know, um, affiliate marketing or those kinds of things. So these feel a little new, but it also feels a little easier in many ways, right, for them to do. It's like, hey, instead of having an ad, we just have a link to a product and we get paid if that link gets clicked. It's not that far off removed from, you know, from a traditional uh, from a traditional advertiser. And so, you know, I think what you're seeing, I mean, he even says it, right? He says, you know, the, the, the he says, you know, the now what in content marketing is moving people down the funnel. And I think, as we've said a million times, that's a limited view of content marketing. It, it, if you only look at content marketing as a means of closing a deal, in other words, if you only look at it as a means of putting another qualified lead into your shopping cart, 
that's a limited view of the value that content marketing can provide. And so yeah. it's a it's a great one. It's a common one. It may be the most common one that's out there right now, but it's a limited view because it only looks at content marketing as an alternative form of advertising that puts another lead into the shopping cart rather than a business strategy that can offer all kinds of value from data to revenue generation to cost savings, all the stuff that we talk about in the book. It's just a limited view. So I... I I'm super glad that they're that they're diversifying, and I think it's really interesting. What it brought back for me was the this whole idea that we see these days with, you know, why we why you know why we look at these articles and go, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes true. It makes total sense, right? Even the story that we'll talk about next, we go, yeah, that makes sense. A media company is starting to productize and diversify their revenue streams, but. When we turn that around and we look at product companies trying to diversify into the media business or try and draw revenue out of a content-oriented platform, everybody goes, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. Don't stop talking crazy to me. That's what are you talking <laughs> that's, about. That's, that's crazy talk. That's right. What are you talking about there? That's, we're not in that business. Well, okay, you're not in that business, but you're, you know, the media companies where you're spending money are in that business and will very quickly become your competitors for the attention and the wallets of the consumers that you're trying to serve. So I just, you know, it's if I'm a content marketing person working for a brand, I look at this article and go, this is yet another, you know, arrow in my quiver to say this is the business reason I want to create a content program in this company that I can invest in and then get some return yeah. out of that's more than just generating leads because look at what Hearst is doing. I have two points. One's a one would be, I guess, considered a rant, and one was a rave uh, to end up um, kind of uh, finish up this article. One it talks about the Hearst experiment here that seems to be working their best products experiment, and they talk about how the majority of their traffic comes from search, and that's what they're focused on. And I get that for the types of products yeah. that they're trying to, but they're still putting all that juice in the hands of Google, and that's a concern. And a lot of people that I've talked to, uh, we've even struggled with it on CMI. You know, search is, um, you cannot hang your hat just on search now and into the long term. Uh, so I would have liked to see more of like, we're trying to build an audience here and generate revenue. And, and I know they already have an audience, but I didn't see that in the article. So that's a concern if they're sort of going all in with, uh, with search there. And the, the rave is I sort of liked at the end, this is the last paragraph. Um, he says, the publisher of the future will have expertise in three places. It will have a database of content, a database of people, and a database of products. And the first thing I thought of, I wanted to get your take on, Robert, is, isn't that every company? <laughs> no. it's. I mean, it should be every company, but it's not. It's, that's the <laughs> isn't that, the, but isn't that... It isn't yes, that market isn't that marketing your, into yes. the future is not the, just to the point you always company. make, which I have I, I'm quoting in my keynote at Content Marketing World. We it's in the book. It's I use it every time I teach a workshop. We're in the same business now. The business model for product companies and media companies is exactly the same. And just right, just to that point, the funny, the funny thing was, the, the, I was going to call that out too as, as one of the last bits, this last paragraph, the publisher of the future will have expertise in three places. The, the, let's not forget how he ends that sentence. He says, it will have a database of content, a database of people, and a database of product. We are really good at a global database of content, and a database of products is what best products is for. That he, you're missing the most important piece. <laughs> you just, I mean, the, the, uh, the uh, people. You, you, you said all three, and then you missed the most important one. You know, it's like the, the audience is what's important there, and so 
I would say this is our opportunity. This is where we can look at the media companies as they, you know, stress and fret and and run around the stage trying to figure out how their database of content is going to work with a database of product. We've already got those two things. All we need to do is focus on the one thing where they're not focused, which is the relationship with the consumer. And we get to build our own audiences. And that's an amazing thing. Maybe it was in there and it was just cut for space. <laughs> I mean, let's so. let's give him the benefit Maybe of the so. doubt. Maybe it was actually in there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Here we go. All right. Moving on to our last story that we're going to cover in depth here for this episode. This one coming courtesy of Mashable.com. That stalwart pillar of marketing. Anyway, I get off on a rant every time we have a story from Mashable. But anyway, why is BuzzFeed selling a hot plate? Big hat tip, by the way, here to Ali Balsersack. I mean, that's uh, at Ali B is underscore Ali B, I should say, on uh, Twitter. So thank you, Ali, for the story there um, done through the hashtag on Twitter. The story opens up by saying it's one thing to pivot to video. It's quite another to pivot to kitchenware. The former video has become a major trend and a dark running joke in the media world. As media outlets continue to struggle to justify the economics of the digital world, video beckons as a better option. BuzzFeed does plenty of video, but for arguably the biggest and most experimental media startup, that is not enough. The company has been experimenting with launching products and on Thursday revealed its most aggressive move yet, a tasty branded smartphone connected hot plate. It uh, goes on to describe the new BuzzFeed um, brand and the hot plate there and they're making products. And just to the point of our last story, here we go. Here's a big media company that's getting into the product manufacturing business. I would imagine in the next year you will go into, I don't know, uh, a Target, Kohl's, and you will see tasty branded uh, kitchenware. Yep. Um, I agree with you. We are not, I mean, it does, it makes perfect sense to me. And that's why I, I love, I mean, I absolutely love this. I mean, you and I, we covered in the book uh, with Tasty uh, creating the customized cookbooks that in that's what right. the first three months they sold over a hundred thousand copies and that's right generated millions of dollars from that and that was just the start. So you wonder, oh, how does BuzzFeed monetize all those Tasty videos? Well, now we're starting to see that. So they built the audience, they built this brand up, and here we're you know they're starting with a with a whatever the computer. A, what is it? An AI uh, hot plate? I don't know what. Yeah, it's what it, really, it's, it's just a hot plate. I think it's just a hot plate connected to your smartphone that does. It's got the connection to the recipes and stuff like that. To, but it's uh, it's really interesting. The broccoli is the broccoli is done. The chicken's yeah, done. Exactly. The, does that is that going to tell me when my chicken's done? Because if it tells me when the chicken's done, then I'm all in. But for young, you know, but for young people who are either just starting out or in dorms or are in, you know, small apartments and, you know, I mean, this is, this is just such a perfect thing for that, you know, that target persona and figuring out how the, you know, because they're consuming all these things online and boom, they can load it up. They've got it, you know, they've got their tasty hot plate that can make food. And it's just, yeah, I think it's, I think it's great. I love the fact that he says, this is going to be the hardest thing we've ever done. I, he, it's recognizing the difficulty that this is completely outside of their box. But this is the, but you talk about the bias. Uh, this the, in this article it says a BuzzFeed declined to share how much of its revenues now come from e-commerce. The hot plate, however, highlights BuzzFeed's willingness to make big bets on products and other weird ideas. It's not a weird idea. That's the thing. Right. 
It's right. not. It makes perfect sense. It's just not what we've used we we've done in the past. But it makes right. perfect sense if you think about it, where you build an audience and then you figure out well what 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 does that audience want? It's very simple. Sure. It's common sense. There were sense. so many adjectives that could have gone in there instead of why weird. just say, why weird? Where you're making it sound strange that yeah. BuzzFeed's doing this. They're they're just innovative because they're they're trying the model that you and I have been talking about. It's not Well, we're weird. So well, that's there's true. that. We are weird. So maybe maybe it is the right <laughs> adjective. I just don't like it. I want innovative. Why not other innovative ideas? Why does it have yeah. to be weird? Right. Or interesting. Why is that why do you have to put me down? Why do you have to put baby in a corner? Why why do you gotta be a hater? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I can't wait for the next products that are coming it out. It should be very, very, very interesting. I love what speaking, they're doing. Speaking of interesting, fascinating, and just wonderful, we have a show sponsor we should talk about, our wonderful friends at Smartling. Oh, wonderful friends at Smartling have a great piece of content available called Going Global with Mobile App Content. And in this uh, piece of amazing literature, you'll learn how leading brands are leveraging mobile app translation to capture bigger shares of a fast-growing international market. Did you know, Robert, global downloads across all app stores will increase 20% per year, reaching 352 billion downloads in 2021. That's a long way away. Every time I see that 2021, I'm like, it's, it's like four, is that four years away? It's less than four years away. Yeah. I guess it's not so long. Yeah. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be catching up to you yeah. in age. In today's fast-paced and, <laughs> and global marketplace, using sophisticated translation software and services is one of the best ways for mobile app companies to distinguish themselves from the competition. So you need to download this ebook, Going Global with Mobile App Content, to discover why delivering a localized mobile experience matters to your business. Uh, you need to download it at cmi.media slash pnr194, cmi.media slash pnr194, and you'll learn projections of mobile app growth and usage across the globe, why localization delivers a competitive advantage for mobile app companies, and how to simplify mobile app translation, modification, and distribution. So you have to do, after you listen to our podcast, you have to go and you have to go download this piece and engage with it and love it. And treat it like your family. <laughs> so it's a great piece. It really is a great piece. So thank you to Smartlink. Global. You know what? It's funny. Even in content marketing world, we have a whole track for for global. The global is where you get people that really get and buy into content marketing, and they they're in big companies and they're just struggling with it because there's so many ways you could set up. Uh, you know, how you do your translation and how you think about global content distribution. It is not easy. It's very com oh, no. it's complex. So the, this type of education from Smartling really helps. I will tell you, I've been through my fair share of translation and localization projects, big translation and localization projects for content for a global organization. And man, is that hard stuff. That is just a... It is a very, I mean, just even regular content, right? Just, you know, like the marketing brochures and the website and email and all that stuff where you're talking about your product and, you know, all that kind of stuff can be, that alone is just incredibly complicated. Um, you add in the, the, the things about content marketing with culture and humor and politically correct and all those kinds of things. And man, it's just the, the level of complexity just is exponential. It's a really hard thing to get right. I thought, I thought content marketing was easy. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's not. Somebody told it's me it would be easy. Not. Nobody told this, me. This is why we're 194 episodes into this thing. Yeah, that's what it, that's what it really is. Okay, well, thank you to SmartLink for that. Hey, folks, it is now time for your favorite segment of the show in our newly rebooted segment, uh, segment-a-thon, as it were. Um, it is our rants and rave section where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that makes us feel like, oh, we've taken a moment and, and we just have gotten it all together or we need to take a moment because, quite frankly, we're ready to kick somebody in the you-know-what. Um, and so let's see. I am going first because I have this old marketing this week. Thank God because and, I've been, yes, it's been yeah, carrying. It's carrying Every time you do it, we get letters. We get, we get letters. <laughs> Complaints. Yes. It's called customer yeah. service. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I have a very, very fast rant and then I have a bit of a... I don't know, commentary is probably the better word, but it's closer to a rave. Um, The rant, which was sent to us by a lot of people, um, I'm going to give Christopher Clark, uh, at Chris Clark, excuse me, at a Chris Clark on Twitter, um, the the shout out here. um, And thank you uh, to Christopher for that on the Twitter hashtag for sending us the drum.com article with the wonderful title, the wonderful and always inspirational title of The Great Content Marketing Swindle, um, (laughs) written by um, this fabulous copywriter um, and uh, a self-proclaimed copywriter. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because, quite frankly, the arguments are tiresome. Um, And so um, it and, and the argument, he loses me about, uh, I don't know, 400 or 450 words into the piece. All I'm going to say is it follows the formula that you've seen and loved here on This Old Marketing Forever, misdefine the practice, make it seem much more simplistic than it really is, and then basically say that's ridiculous, it's not the only way to do your marketing and your strategy, and then basically say there's all these other things you should be doing, and you know, and then basically profit from the wonderful clickbaity headline. So I'm not going to spend any time sort of picking apart the article because there's there's plenty to pick apart there, but I, I, I don't want to. All I want to point out with this wonderful little rant is the juicy, tasty, wonderfully nutritious irony um, that comes at the brilliant end of this, um, basically saying that content marketing is completely a swindle. There's no value to it at all. Um, and that basically anybody who does it is a snake oil salesman. And the, then the article is tagged at the very end with submit your uh, content marketing award submission for the drum content awards, which are coming up very soon. <laughs> so basically it's snake oil, but we're going to be having an award show about it anyway, where you can win an award. So yay. So if you haven't submitted to the drum content awards yet, ba- make sure to go do that. And perhaps you might apply through the great content marketing swindle article, just so they can see that wonderful analytics in action. Kind of went right, the, so kinda, they kind of went the other way on that one. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't see that. A little bit the other way. I didn't see that promotion coming there at the end. (laughs) Uh, This is what happens when you match keywords and do. And that's exactly right. You're like, oh, this is my content marketing. We'll put the yeah. We'll put the awards (laughs) under there. Oh my gosh, that is this is that's really funny. Yeah, that's. I would if I was them, I'd probably take it down because you'd want to say probably. Yeah, I mean, because you're gonna say, well, if if you're gonna do this hoax of a. Marketing practice. Oh, you might as well submit it for an award. <laughs> exactly. If you're going to do this <laughs> dumb thing that I'm telling you not to do, you can win an award doing it. So it's fantastic. 
Um, all right. The other one that I want to just quickly um, comment on is an article that comes courtesy of Min Online, um, which I've been discovering, actually. It's an interesting uh, website. Um, the headline here is, Are Distrust and Business Models Changing Journalism? Um, and it's a really wonderful article. Of course, we'll link to it in the show notes. And, and I recommend you you read it, especially if you're interested in the evolution of journalism and, and, and what's going on um, with journalism, with trust of media companies. Um, and everything with the business model of journalism, just like we talked about at the beginning of the show. The reason I wanted to comment on it is because I have a blog post. Um, for you fans of the show, you may remember four or five shows ago, I, I sort of inadvertently sort of blurted out the democratization of distrust and said, hey, I should write a blog post on that. Well, I did. I actually wrote the blog post, and it's coming out on CMI within a week or two or something like that. And um, so that is coming out, and it basically says what, in large part, the writer of this article says here, um, without the major point, of course, that I make, um, which, of course, is that this is the biggest opportunity that marketers have. And what I wanted to do is just sort of summarize that and just sort of talk through it because to me, one of the biggest things, and this article speaks to it a little bit, is this we've become hyper sort of focused on this attention thing, right? We call it the attention economy. It's the attention, you know, attention, attention, attention. We, you know, we have more than a goldfish for sure, but it's always about attention. And what the point I make in the article that I write is if attention is gold and that's what we're striving for, then trust quite frankly, is Bitcoin, right? That's where we're really moving toward. And I bring up the point about uh, PR uh, firm Edelman just came out with their trust barometer this year. And this I didn't know until I actually went and started doing the research. It's the lowest it's been ever since they started measuring it across all institutions, government, media, brands, everything. It's the lowest it's ever been, which feels like we feel like, yes, that's Exactly right, right. Right now, you you feel like it's 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 there, but this is where our opportunity is with content marketing. And for those of us who are struggling to build a business case or struggling to measure, trust is one of the best ways we can do that. I'll give you a quick example of this. I was working this example is in the blog post that I write. It's I was working with a financial services company, and they did a one of their typical brand research uh, recall studies where they were measuring the idea of how much do you trust our brand. And instead of just doing it with their competitors, I suggested, and this was a few years ago, that they do it not only with their brand competitors, but they do it with the media companies where they advertise as well. And they did. And as you might expect, they sort of came in, you know, bottom or middle of the pack when it comes to competitors. Um, and interestingly, the brands for media were interspersed through there. And so interestingly, they just did this and they've been launching their content marketing platform for the last, I don't know, two and a half years. They've had it up and running. They've been really successful with it. They've been building an audience. They've been really creating great content. And they went and did that brand recall uh, again, both to general public and to the subscribers of their blog, to the subscribers of the, the, the news digital magazine that they have. The fascinating thing was, they basically did go up a little bit, you know, but they had other marketing things going on. They did a rebrand. They've been really focused on marketing, put a bunch of money into paid advertising, and they did build more trust awareness in just general against their brands, competitors, as well as, interestingly, the media companies who sank quite a bit. But among their subscribers, the people who subscribed them, they were number one. They were number one not only against their competitors, they were number one against any of the media brands oh, that they looked fantastic. at as, as well. It's just such a great story to show that they are building trust 
as a measurable output of a marketing effort against not only their competitors, but the brands that they are advertising, paying money to sit adjacent to. And the one day, what I told the media buyer was, I said, just once, I want you, I want you when you're negotiating one of your media buys to say to one of those media brands, hey, you should probably spend a little money advertising with us because you might get a trust bump. And there you go. That's that's my commentary. I just think it's I just think it's wonderful. That I love that story. That is a uh, and that's in the blog post. That example. Yeah, that's in the blog oh, post. That's fantastic. I have to have them speak a content marketing world. They may be. Oh, hold on. I'm in, I'm intrigued. Yes. Uh, yeah. So for my, um, you just mentioned media buying. Yeah, Robert. And it's funny that my uh, this is more of a commentary. Um, it could be a rant. Uh, but it's on this this art of media buying, and and what inspired this is, uh, and you know this, the, the Wall Street Journal came out uh, earlier, what maybe it was late last week about um, Gawker dot com is now now available. Like somebody, it's it's for sale if somebody wants to to purchase that. And so I was inspired again by this idea of of acquiring media companies, but that we've got this role of the media buyer wrong. So it's this idea that I think. We need to rethink what a media buyer does. Now, we've grown up with the understanding of, um, and the, of the role of what a media buyer does. Basically, the role of a media buyer is to analyze advertising space and to communicate a particular message. And, and ever since the dawn of advertising, it's been someone's job to figure out how to best target and disrupt our audience, target audience, for maximum impact. Now... I think we've the media buying role has to take another step. It has to change, and it has to change quickly, in my opinion. And I'll, I'll give you a, um, an example from last week. I met with a content leader at a very large enterprise who asked me about the Aero Electronics case study that you and I both love, where, for yeah. those of you that don't know, they purchased 51 media properties over two years, becoming the largest media player in the electronics industry. And in simple terms, she asked me, what was the process for analyzing media properties for purchase rather than just placement? Now, this is a great question, right? And we had, right. A, we had a fantastic discussion about the process. And then I went back to the office and later in the day, the, the question really started to bother me. The, the, <laughs> the idea that brands start to buy whole properties over just renting space is starting to take off. You and I are starting to cover this. It's critically important to the role of what marketing needs to be now and then into the future. And you and I talk about this and and killing marketing. But right now, there is no one to perform this role at at least every company I've been in. Let's say 99.9% of companies. There's no one that will take on this role of maybe taking the media buyer to the next level, not just interrupting people in actually purchasing media companies. And then, and what I feel if, if this role of the media buyer doesn't evolve in some way, I think opportunities are going to just pass these companies by. And, and for example, the wall street journal reported this gawker.com thing is available. Now this is, you know, this once, once great brand with a very loyal audience, probably it's been sort of set to the side for a while. I lost that luster, but a brand targeting that audience could be interested but it, it will obviously never happen because, first of all, marketers aren't even thinking about this opportunity. And second, they don't know how to perform the function of analyzing the opportunity. So, I mean, maybe they could kick it up to their corporate M&A department, but they probably don't know how to make the case. So, I mean, I, I talked you and I talked about this a few years ago when ESPN was shutting down uh, Bill Simmons' uh, site Grantland. 
And we kicked around the idea of maybe Nike could buy it or Puma or Under Armour would have been perfect suitors. But, you know, alas, it just, you know, just shut. So I don't think that media buying should go away. Uh, but I think that the role of the media buyer and the process of finding suitable advertising space for our message needs to shift away from that, basically from renting to ownership. I think that's what absolutely has to happen. So the new media buyer can actually take advantage of these opportunities that come around. So that's God, my, I love that. That's I my love that so much. Redefining what the job is of the media buyer. That is such a cool idea. I got to tell you that I did not know you were going there and I thought that was that's awesome. I just went there. I love that. <laughs> no. Oh, and by the way, by the way, Time Inc just literally this week put up Coastal Living, the magazine out of uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. Sunset this magazine, Sunset, which is a really good magazine in, here in California, um, Oakland, Northern California mostly. Um, and Golf, Golf Magazine is now for sale. Unbelievable. I mean, I, if, I wonder who would want to buy Golf Magazine. Yeah, I mean, is there anybody, hmm, can we think of anybody, any brand that might buy God, Golf? Taylor made Titleist. Oh, oh my God. God. Top Flight. It's, I mean, yeah, what an opportunity I mean, that would be. Oh, it's a big one. But see, that's isn't isn't that the issue? I mean, you and I both run into it where if the opportunity comes and they say, oh, yeah, uh, even though we haven't thought about it before, we're intrigued. What do we do now? They have nobody to do it. Well, you know, what's interesting is this and this came out of a um, I almost I almost talked about this as one of my my blog posts. It's, it's the same guy, my friend, Tim, who sent me um, the thing about uh, P&G also sent me a note. Um, hi, Tim. I know you listen. Um, and um, he sent me a note. Basically, it was from the Stratechery uh, or Stratechery. I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's the, their podcast. It's a great one. Um, and they talked about this um, magazine, this sports magazine, um, being acquired um, and up for sale. Um, and that's not the point because we just talked about that. But the point was, and he made this point, which I thought was really interesting, if you can't do it, if you can't summon the will to pull cash out to go buy one of these media properties, there are a bunch of different venture capital companies that will be happy to go in there with you. So a brand could easily go to a VC company and say, hey, listen, why don't we put a little money into this joint venture called Golf? We're a brand. We'll put it together. We'll make money with it. It'll become our marketing property. You'll make a little dough with it. We'll put together a network and basically make it a JV with yeah. a VC company. Don't risk anything. I, I could absolutely see that, or even a consortium of, yeah. of the top, let's say the top six non-competitive advertisers in the publication. Put a consortium together, do it that way. I mean, it's another, all kinds of opportunities. I love that That's one, right. Though. Love That's that right. one. That's right. Yeah. That's right. All right. Well, let's let's talk about an example from the past. Um, this is our This Old Marketing This Week, and a big hat tip here to Jeremy Jones, friend and family of the show. He's submitted before, so thank you, Jeremy, for... Um, this awesome, uh, awesome example. The uh, the example and what we'll link to in the show notes, and we've talked about GE before, and, and GE is speaking at Content Marketing World. Um, 
And But this is a really interesting one from GE, but it comes all the way back to the 1950s. Um, so during the 1950s, GE Research Labs, they were developing all kinds of things. They had automatic pilot for jet aircraft. They had, um, as they're saying here, Lexan polycarbonate resin, the first all-transistor radio, radar defense systems, and techniques for FET. But basically, they were really pushing the edge in terms of new science and cool technology that was um, helping them really become a major player in high tech, um, things like nuclear power, the electronics industry, all kinds of things, the emerging industries of computers and all sorts of stuff. They produced comic books um, and these comic books were built for kids and the kids were being encouraged to uh, pursue careers in science and technology, engineering, math, the STEM, right? All the STEM education that is so popular um, today. And it went out, General Electric went out and hired all these well-known artists uh, from the comic book industry, such as, uh, I guess, a guy by the name of George Inky Russos, and he was the guy who did Batman for a, a number of years. And he drew this series called Adventures in Science. And the Adventures in Science series, comic book series, it covered everything from space travel to electricity, lots of facts were thrown in about science and the whole goal of it was to get kids hooked on science and really get excited about innovation Um, and on the last page of every piece of the comic each series were basic tips on how you too could become an engineer and so the whole point here is just to the you know we've made this case with the aero electronics and with uh, johnson and johnson with baby center and with basically teaching your markets how to become your customers And that is the role of marketing. It is such an important role of marketing is to teach the markets how to become your customers. And this is what GE was doing. It is an age-old classic thing that has been, quite frankly, forgotten by most marketing practitioners, teaching markets how to become your customers. And this is what GE was doing with this wonderful comic book series. And the new content marketers today are doing, which is helping people understand the importance of why you're in business and become and help them train them to become your your customers anyway they were comic books they were distributed for free um and today if you want a mint condition one um they can go for 30 40 50 bucks each and so they're quite a collector's item so wonderful example of this old marketer from marketing from uh, from ge and a speaker at content marketing world this year oh i gotta check ebay and yeah, see if those, right. those are, oh, that would be, that'd be something. It would be, be cool. You know what would be cool is to be to get a couple of copies of those and have uh, Linda Boff autograph a couple. Oh, that's, that's a great idea. So I need that's a new fun. collection because I'm all out or of. Or give her a copy. Give her a copy. Ever, give, actually oh, give her a true. copy framed. We, yeah. we, because I have to do something different with my collectibles because I'm all, I've been collecting the Moana series of pops and I'm all out of collection. <laughs> you're all out of pops. You're all out of yams. <laughs> You're all at a yams. <laughs> yams, that's what I think of that. Uh, well, I know what you're doing this week. I know what you're doing this week. So we're going to be busy. Yeah, uh, it should be fun. We'll we'll get it done. Ten hours of recording time, probably. But we'll make it yes. happen. It'll be a good day. And, uh, it'll, but be it'll be two good, good days in a row. It'll be good getting together with the team here in, in Cleveland. Yeah, it so it'll be fun. It yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's what we're doing. And uh, I don't know. I like the new show format. Hope, hopefully people will like it, too. Uh, 
Somewhere. I do too. I do too. So if you liked it, if you liked this episode, folks, number 194, won't you leave us a kind review on iTunes? We love the kind reviews. We don't want the mean reviews. We don't want the mean tweets. We want the kind tweets and the kind reviews. And if you haven't yet, do consider subscribing via iTunes or Stitcher.com or your favorite podcatcher. And when you leave us a review or if you subscribe, please let us know via the Twitter hashtag. Hashtag us up at this old marketing. We'd love to thank you personally for that. And of course, story ideas, story ideas this old marketing ideas we love them we need them we love you because you give them to us hashtag us up at this old marketing if you can do the hashtag at this old marketing it makes it so much easier for me when i do the show notes um i so appreciate you just sort of replying back to me or joe and throwing out a story idea but then it makes it really hard to remember and go back through twitter and figure it all out um all the links we talked about today folks will be available in the show notes that will be available in the shows we go to publish tonight monday night and of course, in the show post in all its replete technicolor glory at thisoldmarketing.com on Saturday. Until next week, everybody, remember it's your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing. is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.